Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning, good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Is it dark where you are? Is it dark where you are? Hmm, God said, let there be light. What does it mean to be people who live in the light and walk in the light and are possessed of the one who is the very light of the world? Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. Where in the word are you today? I am in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. I would also commend verse 7, which uh, we'll also read in just a moment. So um, verses 5 and 6 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. So the context here, the larger context, is a, is an ongoing conversation about the message that we have received, that we heard, and that we're passing on to others. So this is a, a conversation um, among Christians who want to be conduits of um, what they have received from God in Christ Jesus and then, then are pursuing the world with the gospel. Like it, it Imagine that you you are a flow-through account. You're a pass-through account. That's the, what's happening here. So 1 John opens with this same, like, commitment to being a pass-through, to being a conduit. And when we think about light, that's exactly what's going on here. We are, we are people who reflect the light of God into the world, the light of Christ. And so there's there's a lot going on here in relationship to that. So I want to read the context of this from first John one. I just want to read the full first seven verses and commend it to you today and listen for the, the repetition, the repetition, the way that what is received is what is passed along. So opening um, at first John one, one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. They're clearly talking about Jesus, right? Okay, so at verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. So let me encourage you today to um, 
connect with the one who is the light of the world. Let him turn on the light of your life and then reflect the light of his love into the world around you. Not that people might see you, but in the same spirit that uh, the writer of First John, who is John, says, you know, like, let, let, let me pass on to you what I in turn also received. Like, this, this is the light that we pass on um, that others might see and follow in the way. All right, one big quick uh, headline here before we jump into our conversation with our friend Ben Johnson. Uh, Hunter Biden was set to, um, well, he was set to, like, let's make a deal. Do you remember that show? That's kind of the way I'm thinking about this story. So Hunter Biden is the son of uh, the president of the United States. He was uh, he was set to make a deal with the Justice Department, but that evaporated yesterday when the judge presiding over the case um, just simply, like, asked um, some questions. And so uh, Hunter Biden was expected to plead guilty to two um, misdemeanor, I mean, they were reduced to misdemeanors, tax uh, tax evasion charges under a deal with the government. But the judge delayed her ruling on the agreement because she needs additional information. So that resulted in Hunter Biden actually pleading not guilty, which was a surprise development Um, A disagreement arose over how far the immunity from prosecution was going to extend. So um, under under the agreement reached between Hunter Biden's attorneys and the and the Justice Department, it was the understanding of Hunter Biden's attorneys that he would be immune from all further prosecution. Um, That was basically what they articulated yesterday in the courtroom. Um, prosecutors said, um, well, not exactly like he's, he's, you know, we wouldn't prosecute him any further for these crimes during this window of time in relationship to specifically, um, tax evasion and gun ownership. But it doesn't mean that we might not prosecute him in relationship to, um, his failure to register as a foreign agent. So this is the FARA Act, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Prosecutors said he could still be uh, pursued under that. His defense attorney balked and the deal fell apart. So that's what happened yesterday. Um, in short, you're going to hear it uh, articulated in a lot of different ways, but that's sort of the down and dirty version um, of what took place in the courtroom yesterday. Um, here's, uh, here's something that I want us to pursue in conversation with Ben Johnson here in just a moment. Um, is it ever okay? Is it ever okay to use violence to achieve political goals? Is it ever okay to use violence to achieve political goals? That's a tricky question. If you're a Christian who is also an American, Mm -hmm. thinking there about the American revolution for just a moment. Uh, New polling reveals that a number of our neighbors actually think that it is okay to use political violence to achieve political goals. Um, And just imagine the range of the political goals that they might have in mind. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson is joining us. He's the rights writer. He's also a senior reporter and editor at The Washington Stand. He's got an article coming out, uh, well, any time now. Um, on political violence um, and and our willingness to or support for political violence um, to achieve our own political ends. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you as always, Carmen. It's a complicated question. Is it ever 
okay to use political violence to achieve political goals. Um, what did Americans say most recently when asked? Uh, this is a, kind of a disturbing poll, certainly, uh, from the University of Chicago. Uh, and they document every three months what Americans have to say about whether they would be willing to use force and whether force would be justified for certain reasons. And what they found is an increase across the board. Uh, particularly, the largest increase was in the number of people who believe force would be justified uh, to restore abortion rights nationwide. 31 million Americans uh, believe that, which is uh, an increase uh, uh, over just uh, a few months ago in April, uh, almost a 10 million uh, person increase. They also found 44 hey, hey, million ben, Americans ben, say... Ben, because it's hard to see math when we're talking on the radio, could you repeat that? Could you repeat the number? Because yeah. that's that's a huge percentage of the population that says they would be willing to use political violence or see violence used in order to restore abortion rights. Now, that language in and of itself is a bit euphemistic, I think. But um, but tell us what the number is again. Yeah, it's it's uh, 31 million or put another way, about uh, four and a half times the population of Minnesota. So that's it's an enormous number there. Uh, similarly, uh, even more people, 44 million, say it would be OK to justify uh Violence if it were going to coerce a congressman to, quote unquote, do the right thing, whatever it is that that person believes the right thing is. Uh, there's also a slight increase uh, about uh, uh, from from 4.5 um, percent to 7 percent of people who believe that it would be OK to use violence to restore Donald Trump to the White House. So across the board, uh, Democrats say that it's OK to use uh, violence to restore abortion. Republicans say it's okay to use violence uh, to uh, to a lesser degree uh, to restore Donald Trump, and both Republicans and Democrats are more likely to say it's okay to use violence against Congress. So that's that's the disturbing trend, and more so because you see polls like this from time to time. But the group that did this, NORC NORC, uh, has it, it's the gold standard of polling. So this genuinely reflects a broad and ongoing trend. Uh, that they've documented every three months for more than a year. So depending on who's highlighting the information, um, you know, there's just a, a lot of folks pointing to, um, I, I think the, the last data point that you lifted up, 6.1% of those surveyed believe it's justified, um, political violence is justified to prevent the prosecution of Donald Trump. Um, as he faces, you know, potential federal indictment again today, and trial dates are being set for his uh, his prosecution um, for both what looks like spring and summer of 2024. And as he continues to, you know, have a a, a really breathtaking lead um, in, in terms of those who've put themselves forward uh, in running for the presidency on the Republican side. Um, this idea that it, you would be justified in using force to preserve to prevent the prosecution of somebody, um, this is a. I think this is a question about the system, like whether or not people actually trust that the system is working and that the system is working uh, fairly and justly. It absolutely is, and and 
The poll goes into that. Uh, there's obviously an increasing number of people who say that uh, the system is broken, that uh, favoritism is baked into uh, the situation, and that uh, that uh, violence is essentially necessary because the system will not protect average people, uh, which, uh, although obviously we would not justify violence, it's hard to defend the system and its fruits uh, after generations of failure when it comes to education, uh, educational levels, economic issues, uh, the shrinking of the middle class, all of these things have uh, led to a situation that is genuinely incendiary. And as Christians, I think it's imperative for us to say that politics has to be restored to its proper place. I, I think it's no coincidence that you see this massive increase in the belief in political violence at the same time that people have moved away from faith. Uh, you see the rise of the nuns, and we've always known that nature abhors a vacuum, that uh, people will not believe in nothing. Sooner or later, something will come to take the place of religion. Uh, it did in atheistic societies in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, and it is here. What's rushing to take that void uh, for people who have a yearning to belong to something greater than themselves is a political crusade. And so politics has become an idol on both the right and the left, uh, to some degree, uh, that people have used that in to displace their faith in God. When you come to a point where you say, I believe I should harm other people who are made in the image of God to advance my utopian view of the world, sudden, suddenly we realize that politics has displaced Christianity and has taken the aura of a false faith. Mm, mm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to pivot slightly to a conversation about what the, the Declaration of Independence says. Um, it says that, you know, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. You are the governed if you are a citizen of the United States of America. Um, and do you feel as if those who are serving in elected office and those who are serving in the administrative sa state are actually deriving their powers from the consent of the governed? Does the consent of the governed actually matter anymore? Do we feel like it does? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224.
All right, we're supposed to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. A recent Rasmussen poll shows that across all political parties, most Democrats, 59 percent, most Republicans, 69 percent, and most unaffiliated voters, 74 percent, feel that uh, their congressional representatives do not listen to them. They are not um, actually operating out of uh, a desire to represent the consent of the governed. Um, What do you make of that, Ben? Uh, I think it's overly optimistic on the part of voters. (laughs) I think that uh, two-thirds is probably uh, not nearly close enough to to the Mm. reality. Uh, It's no question whatsoever that uh, the vast majority of policies that pass through uh, Congress or that go through any branch of legislature, Congress is too constricting, really, uh, don't reflect the, the will of the American people. You can see that in polling data on a whole host of issues, uh, certainly when it comes to uh, educational issues, parental rights, when it comes to uh, the state of abortion in many, many areas around the country, uh, when it comes to uh, um, uh, border policy and other issues, the economy, uh, education, you see a whole group of issues where the polling data are overwhelming. Uh, you have lopsided majorities, 70, 80 percent of Americans who are on one side of an issue, and yet the opposite is done, sometimes even in the absence of legislation, simply through executive fiat. So it's hard to say that uh, things are not done according to the will of the governed. Uh, however, the American people need to connect the dots that the people they elect are the ones who are doing this. Uh, it is people who are empowered with their votes every four years or every two years in some instances, uh, who are carrying out these policies which violate their their will. And so it's imperative for the American people to know where people actually stand and what their track record is. Uh, as Tony Perkins of FRC says, uh, the best indicator of future performance is past performance. So if you know what people have done in the past, it's an excellent standard to know where they're going to go in the future and whether you should vote for them or not. Typically, uh, people will will not always tell you the truth with their words, but their actions will always tell you the truth. Mm. Hey, Ben, can we um, pivot to a, a couple of international headlines related to Russia and Ukraine? I would be delighted. So um, the Ukrainian archbishop, so here we would be talking about Orthodox Christianity, sent a letter to Patriarch Kirill, that would be the Russian Orthodox Church, after Russia shelled uh, churches in Odessa. What's going on here? Yeah, uh, there there was a, uh, there's a historic cathedral in Odessa. It's a landmark, a matter of fact, a UN cultural site uh, that was hit with a missile. Russia and Ukraine are blaming one another. Uh, most people believe it was Russia which is saying it was Ukrainian anti-defense missile. But whatever the case is, it was shelled. Uh, it was destroyed uh, in large part. You know, the building is still standing. It can be repaired, but there was massive damage done. And the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Victor Bikoff, wrote a letter, as you say, to Petra Kirill, uh, essentially calling him uh, someone who is blessing murder. Uh, he says that he has supported Cain's war between uh, warring brothers in the faith, warring fellow Christians, Orthodox uh, Christians in Ukraine and uh, and in Russia, that uh, Petra Kirill has given his blessing to this war. And it is an incredibly pointed letter. What's significant about this, uh, at, at the risk of going a little bit confusing, almost like Life of Brian, there are actually two Orthodox churches in Ukraine. Uh, The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is the group that Archbishop Victor is with, uh, which historically was 
under the Russian Orthodox Church. It declared its autonomy when this war broke out. And the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, uh, which is a rival group uh, very much uh, associated with uh, President Zelensky and the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, the UOC is being accused by Zelensky of being pro-Russian. And you see this, uh, there have been multiple signs that the group is in is indeed independent uh, of, of Moscow. But this letter is maybe the most pointed example where you have an archbishop saying, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church is essentially blessing the murder of his own children, is the wording of the letter. Mm. Um, so we want to be praying for Christians on both sides of uh, of the border and both and on all sides of this particular conflict. Um, I was noting um, uh, a piece in Bloomberg by the former U.S. Allied Commander of NATO, who laid out some options for the United States and NATO um, in terms of protecting grain shipments that Russia is now blocking illegally um, from from U- Ukrainian uh, ports on the Black Sea. Um, we were talking about this the other day, Ben, in terms of you know praying for people who desperately need this food. Um, and so because these are foodstuffs and, and because they're going to parts of the of the world where people need food, um, is is there a way for the U.N. to engage? And if they did or if NATO were to engage, I guess not the U.N., if NATO to, were to engage, um, it, you know, is this a potential way for um, all of us to be drawn into the war with Russia? You see the challenge. There is certainly a challenge here. Uh, Ukraine uh, provides 10 percent of of uh, wheat for the entire world. So it's it's a massive uh, it's it's a massive feeder of the world, much as the United States is, particularly it's it's the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, Ukraine is is a farming and agricultural powerhouse in this area. Much of the region depends on the grain, the corn, and the barley that is produced there. Uh, so it's it's a major player also in sunflower. About half of the world trade uh, is is related to Ukraine. And so NATO, if it gets drawn into um, this issue where perhaps uh, there's a, a shipment in a NATO country and in one of its ports uh, that uh, that is under attack or or somehow uh, is related to Russia, NATO could in fact be drawn into that. And under Article Five, the United States could be drawn in. Now it's interesting. Uh, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and Senator Mike Lee of Utah uh, introduced a motion that would say uh, would clarify that Article Five does not compel the United States to go to war. Uh, Under the U.S. Constitution, war-making power has been given to Congress, and Congress should have the final say under their uh, motion. It actually failed (laughs) dramatically. Only a handful of uh, people in either party supported that resolution. So uh, it's it's very clear that uh, uh, certainly this administration is very much aligned with uh, Zelensky and uh, and its war against uh, Russia. Uh, there are some signs that perhaps even peace has been thwarted as, as a result of that. So it would not be much of a stretch of the imagination to say the United States could be drawn in. And that would be particularly concerning if you look at the entire geostrategic situation, because if we are drawn into a war in Ukraine, that would certainly give China the green light to go ahead and invade Taiwan because we can't fight a two-front war. Okay, um, I have a rights writer project for you um, before we talk again. And and I would like to know if we have a right to lie. If a right to lie is protected under the First Amendment in terms of the freedom of speech. So 
We won't put the headline hook on that today, but um, <clears throat> I bet if people uh, were looking around and listening broadly, they know what I'm talking about. So would you um, help us understand that maybe the next time we talk? I, I am intrigued and, and uh, mm-hmm. look forward to the headline hook myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a right to lie under the First Amendment? Well, as a Christian, you know, obviously we want to be people of truth at all times and in all places. Ben, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure as always, Carmen. God bless. Uh-huh. Next time he comes, we're going to find out if, uh, if, if the uh, Constitution protects us uh, under a right to lie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That'll be interesting. All right, let's go upwards with Max Lucado. Oh, you know, sometimes I know you can't hear in my ear what Paul Perot is saying, but um, sometimes he says things that make me chuckle, mm-hmm. even just in the way that, you know, your mic is hot. There you go. Um, it, it's probably scorching hot where you are today. Um, it is temperatures are on the rise. And so we want to be people who take a deep breath, um, who walk in the way of the Lord, who don't sweat it, even though we're sweating. So where in the word are you today? Have you gotten yourself into the word of God before you get out there into uh, the world that God so loves? Um, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Um, So uh, we've got listeners who are traveling and asking for travel mercies and uh, and prayers upon their adventures, both near and far. And so just know I'm praying for you this morning and all of the ways that you you text in. Um, Mary, who is a regular listener to the show, her brother-in-law, passed away uh, yesterday. Um, Ben Johnson, who we just talked with, had an aunt who um, died unexpectedly as well. So just prayers arising for people who are grieving. I found out yesterday that one of our neighbors down the street, um, they they have a son who was born with a a heart defect. And so periodically he has to go in and and have surgical interventions related to that. And he had a really major surgery two days ago. So lots of folks dealing with so many things, a myriad of things. And school's, you know, going to start back here in a couple of weeks. That's hard to imagine. I mean, depending where you live, it's just a couple of weeks away from the beginning of school. For other for others, it's, you know, still more than a month away. Um, but I saw yesterday uh, um, in, a, in a school parking lot, you know, distribution of school supplies and free backpacks and folks really trying to figure out, like, you know, how are they going to make ends meet? Um, prices are still high on many, many things and um, lots of families facing incredible challenges. So let's be praying ardently for one another today, and let's be um, patient with one another. Let's recognize that the heat outside affects us on the inside. It affects our relationships, how we feel. Um, And so just be mindful and aware and conscious of that today. You and I are going to spend a few minutes uh, here together uh, talking across some of the headlines of the day. Some of these are a little bit obscure. Um, Did you know that Einstein actually weighed in on the biblical story of creation. We're going to talk about what he had to say and how much his writing related to that is, uh, is going for uh, on, the, uh, on the open market. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, uh, for the first time, a letter written by Albert Einstein on his views related to the creation of all things. Um, it's up for sale uh, in Pennsylvania, which I think is, you know, interesting. If you're, uh, if you're in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, you can actually like go see it. So the letter was written on April the 11th, 1950, and it was written to a group of 
Jewish students. The value placed on it is $125,000. My guess is it will actually go for more than that. In this letter, Albert Einstein opines that um, a person of science, a scientist, cannot believe in the creation story of Torah, the creation story of Genesis. He argued that science, quote, replaces and supersedes such religious concepts. Here's, a, here's um, you know, so it's a good opportunity for you to ask yourself, is that true? Is he right? Um, so there was this correspondent. First of all, I just think it's really cool that Albert Einstein um, corresponded with, uh, with people um, and, you know, like answered their questions. Um, and so at the time, uh, so we're talking about 1950, at the time, there was a well-known German rabbi named Michael Monk, one of the leading voices in the Orthodox Jewish world at the time. Um, uh, Michael Monk and his uh, wife, Martha, fled persecution in their home country um, uh, and um, were residing uh, by this time in, uh, well, here in America. All right, so I'm I'm scrolling through the, the correspondence here. So she wrote in late March of 1950, on behalf of the students of a series of lectures on religion, I would like to ask you whether you think it's possible for a modern scientist to reconcile the idea of the creation of the world by God, a higher power, with his scientific knowledge. And that is the question to which Einstein was responding. Um, And he wrote, um, he believed the literal interpretation of the Bible, which sees God as the creator of the universe, um, that that's what he believes. It's interesting, right? And then he went on to state that he did not accept the creation story. So he accepts God as the creator of the universe, but not the creation story. Um, and so here's, a, here's quotes from the letter. The person who is more or less trained in scientific thinking is alien to the religious creation in the original sense of the cosmos because he applies the standard of casual conditionality to everything. If you are, however, to interpret the Bible symbolically or metaphorically, it's not clear anymore whether God is in fact to be thought of as a person. So he's trying to weigh here... Um, the reality that God is real and God is personal, the universe is personal, and um, the creation account or the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, and what he knows in terms of the way he thinks about things from a scientific method. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because this is actually the conversation that most people who are thinking about it, this is the question that they have. This is the concern that they raise. And so, you know, here is a headline that we can say, all right, um, Einstein believed in the personal reality of God and the personal reality of the universe. And he was having a hard time as a scientist reconciling what he knew about, um, about the origin of things from the Bible and what he understood as a scientist in terms of a timeline? Mm-hmm. That's really the question that this comes down to. Um, and so, was Einstein a person of faith? He considered himself to be absolutely a person of faith in, in a God who created all things. How did that happen? Well, Einstein was arguing that 
although God created all things personally and on purpose, the Bible itself doesn't record a scientific answer to the question of how or when. And so I just, I think it's helpful for us to um, to recognize and, and to think about these things ourselves and to be prepared to weigh into the conversations um, in, in similar fashion. Be prepared to answer the real questions that people have um, about the reality of who God is. I can say, I believe in a personal God, and I believe that God is the creator of all things. You are not going to find um, something behind, before, or beyond the reality of who God is. And God is personal. And so although I may not have all the answers to all the questions that you ask me about science, I can point to the one who you're going to find no matter how far or wide or deep you go in terms of your scientific inquiry. You're, you're never going to find something that is before, behind, or beneath the reality of who God is. And you're never going to be able uh, to say, you know, here's, here's the first thing, because the first thing had to be made by the first one. Um, we're going to pivot next to a conversation about what we believe. So what if I were to just simply ask you that question? What do you believe? Um, what do you believe about the world and everything in it? <laughs> What do you believe about yourself and others? Do you believe you're an image bearer of God? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to believe in a God who is good and great and gracious? What does it mean to not believe in all of those same things? Um, What does the person living next door to you believe? And what do they say they believe when they're asked? We're going um, to talk next about some um, current research um, questions that have been asked of average Americans, um, and, and we're going to see, like, what do our neighbors really believe? And if you think you know what they believe and you've never gone next door to knock and ask, that's going to be the challenge I set before us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I don't know if you've been um, traveling lately, but uh, airplanes are packed, airports are packed, people are traveling. Tourism around the world is has now surpassed pre-pandemic records in many, many places, including um, Europe. And one of the places that people tend to go, tend to visit when they are traveling abroad, this is very curious to me, they tend to go to church. Well, they don't really go to church, but they go to churches. And so the Associated Press is, um, is reporting on this phenomenon, and I thought I would lift it up and ask the question, when you travel um well, when you travel, do you go to church? Or asked differently, when you travel, do you go to churches? 
people are actually interested in churches as sightseeing or tourist destinations. Um, and they tend to go, uh, you know, this this strategy, I guess, they go during worship times. So like visits, tourist visits are barred during worship times, but that doesn't keep people from showing up during those times. And so then they're kind of like sort of a part of the worship service, but they're they're worshiping as observers. Anyway, it's a very, very curious thing. And so um, I lift this up as a question today. Um, let's hold up a mirror. When you have traveled abroad, have you visited churches as a sightseer? Like, right? Have you? I have. I have. I visited uh, when I when I went to Romania um, in 2001. I think might have been 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, we definitely visited churches in Hungary, like as tourist destinations. We didn't, I mean, we visited them not during worship services. Now, I will say that I am so awed by the reality of who God is and his people who have worshiped over centuries in, in certain places and spaces. Like I'm, I am moved when I am there. And so I am personally worshiping, but I also recognize I'm a tourist and I'm touring it as a tourist. London, certainly. New York. I've been to churches in New York City as a tourist. France, um, Israel. I've certainly visited churches in Israel as a tourist. And so I'm, I'm wondering today, you know, people are interested in churches. Are they interested in being invited to worship? Are they being are they interested in engaging with those of us who worship there? Anyway, it's just a, a curiosity. So what do our neighbors believe? What, um, what do Americans believe? And, and this is about not only ourselves, again, hold up a mirror as we're going over these, this polling from Gallup. Um, hold up a mirror to yourself and ask yourself, you know, how would I answer those questions if somebody knocked on my door or and asked or if somebody, you know, sent me, a survey on my phone and asked, how would I honestly answer a question about belief in God or belief in heaven, belief in angels, belief in hell, belief in the reality of the devil? Um, these, whether or not you believe in the reality of spiritual entities is something that Gallup has been asking for a long, long time. And belief in all of them, belief in God, belief in heaven, belief in angels, belief in hell, belief in the devil, have all been on precipitous decline over the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, there was a point in time when 90% of Americans said they believed in God. So in 2004, this is just to give you a touch point, in 2004, that's 19 years ago, in 2004, 90% of Americans said they believed in God when asked. Today, that number is 74%. So it's not just that people are leaving the church. People are abandoning the most basic of belief. It is one thing to say, I am no longer going to be an XYZ kind of Christian. I am no longer going to attend an XYZ kind of church. Um, you know, I am no longer going to be this variety of Christian. It's a whole nother thing, a whole nother thing to say, I deny God. 
I deny the reality of God. So in 2004, again, just to give you the gifts, to give you the numbers, in 2004, 90% of Americans surveyed said they believed in God. Today, that number is 74%. That's a huge departure, not just of, you know, uh, Christian, Christian belief. <laughs> That's just basic theism. Um, how about the devil? How many people believe in the reality of the devil? Well, it's interesting to me that if you go back to the same point in time, so 2004, when 90% of those surveyed said they believed in God, only 70% said they believed in the devil. So there was already a real gap, a, a real gap in terms of, okay, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God has an enemy or has opposition um, and that it's personal. So belief in the devil now, 58%. So it has declined at basically the same rate and the same percentages as belief in God. So I have to assume that the people who have given up belief in God have also given up belief in the devil. That makes sense to me that those two uh, numbers would be aligned. It also makes sense to me that if you've given up belief in God, you've given up belief in heaven. If there's, if there's no personal God, then there's certainly no personal life after this life. So only 67% of Americans today believe in heaven. Where do the rest of the people think they're going? Well, they don't think they're going anywhere. They literally think this life is all there is. And imagine the implications for your day-to-day living. Imagine the implications for your day-to-day living, your moment-by-moment decision-making, if you actually thought this is all there is. If you thought that all you're ever going to get is what you can get out of this life, imagine how that would change the way that you approached your moment-by-moment living. 67% of of our neighbors believe in heaven. That means a huge percentage do not. Think about that for just a moment. Does your next door neighbor believe in heaven? And if they don't, then imagine um, the hopelessness with which they're living, the grief, the fear they have of death. Maybe not surprising, uh, only 59% of people believe in hell. (laughs) Hell is real, my friend. Um, God, God is real. Heaven is real. The devil is real. Hell is real. Angels are real, but that seems like I don't know, less uh, less urgent. It's not, you know, whether or not you believe in angels is less urgent than whether or not you believe in God. Um, although I will say, you know, I'm sure that my guardian angel is now offended that I have said that. So don't, you know, don't don't poke me in the back with your big saber. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they're real, though. They're real. They're here all the time. They're part of the unseen realm. The Bible attests to it. Uh, and, and we see evidence of it throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so, you know, this this really does get to if if only 74 percent of Americans believe in God, then certainly the belief in the Bible is just way off the mark. Um, and so I, I, I'm not I'm not saying this to um, to condemn anyone. I'm I'm actually saying this to encourage us to go and to knock on the door and ask Um you know, say, you know, I, I just learned today that like only three, only three out of four 
people in America believe in God. And so it occurred to me that like you and I've never had that conversation. And I, I am one of the three out of four. And so I guess, you know, that, that, that leaves you to be one out of three. So, you know, now there's like a 30% chance that your neighbor doesn't believe in God. (laughs) I was telling you, that's how the math works. If you believe in God, then that means that there's a one in three chance your neighbor doesn't. That's astonishing. Okay, how can we respond to the people who don't believe? How can we encourage them? Um, Jim Dennison offers some um, encouragement on this um, at the Dennison Forum. And I just wanted to um, encourage us to seek to live as Christ in the world today, which means that we care about, go to, seek out the lost. We don't wait for them to come to us and ask, oh, what's so different about you and the way you're living? No, no. We go to them and say, there is a different way. There is a better way. You can live in light, not darkness. There is hope. Um, Can I tell you about my friend? And we also have to just refuse to engage in senseless controversies and quarrels. They don't lead anywhere, and they certainly don't lead people to hope and to the truth. Um, We're going to respond to evil with kindness, and we're going to seek the best for those who um, oppose us. Um, People need compassion, they need intercessory prayer, and they need Christians who are walking their faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. So um, we are those people in the world today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So are you reading through the Bible with us? We are engaged in reading through the Bible together. If you haven't signed up already, you need to do so. Um, You can do that at MyFaithRadio.com. You're going to download the study guide. You're going to start listening to the podcast. A very familiar voice going to be on the podcast today. Um, I'm joining Angela Smith today on the Reading Through the Bible Together podcast. We're going to be talking about 2 Timothy 2, um, verses 8 to 14. Um, And so if you haven't already signed up to join us, um, today would be a great day to do that. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. This is Paul speaking. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Are um, Are you enduring challenges or hardships today? Have you considered that it is um, for a purpose and that your test becomes then your testimony? Um, I'm going to encourage you to walk in the light today as Jesus is the light of the world. For what purpose and, and to whose glory? Well, for the purpose that others might see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven, that you might be a point of light in the generation into which God sends you as, um, as his ambassador, his agent of grace, his minister of reconciliation. That is who you are. Bearing the image of the one who is the very image of God. So that's who you are. I invite you to live into that today that others might see and believe. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. 
Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.